Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, let's read us some Dracula. And last we joined the story. Well, okay, let me back up. It has been a week. (laughs) It's been quite a week for everybody. And I just didn't have it in me, frankly, last weekend to do any sort of reading aloud or anything like that. It was a struggle just to get out a couple of episodes of public domain radio. Election anxiety is high and remains high because everything is still unsettled. But, you know, I keep reminding myself that in the year 2000, it wasn't even decided until December, like mid-December, if I remember correctly. It was late. You know, we all spent weeks watching that unfold. And I feel like this time the stakes are a little higher because we know what we're up against. But, fingers crossed, the next day or two or three or however many it takes, whew, will lead to, you know, maybe a little less institutionalized fascism in the United States. So, having said that, let's get right on to reading about the fictional monsters that it's much easier to defeat because dragging them into the sunlight seems to kill them. Uh, So, when last we were here, Mina has been catching Lucy out wandering the moors by night. And now, you know, she's brought her back from this adventure where some stranger was like doing something with her neck, etc. And locked her up in the room with her. And they went out again the next night and they listened to some good music and they had a good meal. And Lucy seems restful. And Mina has locked the door and secured the key the same as before. Though she does not expect any trouble. I bet there won't be any trouble. I bet it'll work out great. So before we get started, I'm going to have a much-needed glass of reading wine. Well, sip. Mm. Oh my god, yes. Oh, I've waited all day for that. I took today off. I don't know why I've waited all day for that, but I took today off and waited until now. Let's read us some Dracula. I just feel like that's a good place to go right now. Oh, and uh, note that I will also, either tonight or tomorrow, be reading a couple of new episodes of the private public domain radio. Uh, That needs a better name. Um, For my Patreon, where we'll be getting back to Brown Stoker's Lair of the White Worm, which really caught me off guard last time. So, fingers crossed. But, you know... That, like you said, that thing about the mongoose and needing a mongoose for regular reasons, 
was amazing. So back to Mina Murray's journal. Oh, okay. But sorry, I swear to God, I'll read this eventually. Something that occurred to me, and I can't remember if I talked about it in a previous episode, something that occurred to me that has never occurred to me on any previous reread of this was what if that reporter in the newspaper who describes like running back and forth, dashing around, trying to figure out the deal with the ship, etc., was Mina, right? Like she talks about wanting to get a job maybe where she could be a secretary or something like that. And she has typing skills and, um, she's clearly a very observational person and she like writes down long conversations from memory in her journal. And the piece in the newspaper is uncredited. It's just a correspondent. And that really makes me want it to be Mina. Like that's my head cannon now. It's got to be the Mina lady reporter, late 19th century. She's running around finding out the truth. She's going to let the world know. Oh, I love that. I love that idea so much. So fingers crossed that that's who Mina, that's who that reporter was. Okay, now I'm really going to start. 12 August. My expectations were wrong, for twice during the night I was awakened by Lucy trying to get out. She seemed, even in her sleep, to be a little impatient at finding the door shut, and went back to bed under a sort of protest. I woke with the dawn and heard the birds chirping outside of the window. Lucy woke too, and I was glad to see was even better than on the previous morning. All her old gaiety of manner seemed to have come back, and she came out and and she came and snug God damn it. And she came and snuggled in beside me and told me all about Arthur. I told her how anxious I was about Jonathan, and then she tried to comfort me. Well, she succeeded somewhat, for though sympathy can't alter facts, it can help to make them more bearable. 13 August. Another quiet day, and to bed with the key on my wrist as before. Again I woke in the night and found Lucy sitting up in bed, still asleep, pointing to the window. I got up quietly and, pulling aside the blind, looked out. It was brilliant moonlight and the soft effect of the light over the sea and sky merged together in one great, silent mystery was beautiful beyond words. Between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat, coming and going in great whirling circles. Once or twice it came quite close, but was, I suppose, frightened at seeing me, and flitted away across the harbor towards the abbey. When I came back from the window, Lucy had lain down again and was sleeping peacefully. She did not stir again all night. 14 August. On the east cliff, reading and writing all day. Lucy seems to have become as much in love with the spot as I am, and it is hard to get her away from it when it is time to come home for lunch or tea or dinner. This afternoon she made a funny remark. We were coming home for dinner and had to come, had come to the, the top of the steps up from the west pier and stopped to look at the view as we generally do. The setting sun, low down in the sky, was just dropping behind Kettleness. The red light was thrown over on the east cliff and the old abbey and seemed to bathe everything in a beautiful rosy glow. We were silent for a while and suddenly Lucy murmured as if to herself, His red eyes again, they're just the same. It was such an odd expression, coming apropos of nothing, that it quite startled me. I slewed round a little so as to see Lucy well without seeming to stare at her, and saw that she was in a half-dreamy state, with an odd look on her face that I could not quite make out. So I said nothing, but followed her eyes. She appeared to be looking over at her own seat, 
whereon was a dark figure seated alone. I was a little startled myself, for it seemed for an instant as if the stranger had great eyes like burning flames. But a second look dispelled the illusion. The red sunlight was shining on the windows of St. Mary's Church behind our seat, and as the sun dipped there was just sufficient change in the refraction and reflection to make it appear as if the light moved. I called Lucy's attention to the peculiar effect, and she became herself with a start, but she looked sad all the same. It may have been that she was thinking of that terrible night up there. We never refer to it, so I said nothing and we went home to dinner. Lucy had a headache and went early to bed. I saw her asleep and went out for a little stroll myself. I walked along the cliffs to the westward and was full of sweet sadness, for I was thinking of Jonathan. When coming home, it was then bright moonlight, so bright that though the front of our part of the crescent was in shadow, everything could be well seen. I threw a glance up at our window and saw Lucy's head leaning out. I thought that perhaps she was looking out for me, so I opened my handkerchief and waved it. She did not notice or make any movement whatever. Just then the moonlight crept around an angle of the building and the light fell on the window. There distinctly was Lucy with her head lying up against the side of the window sill and her eyes shut. She was fast asleep, and by her, seated on the window sill, was something that looked like a good-sized bird. I was afraid she might get a chill, so I ran upstairs, but as I came into the room, she was moving back to her bed, fast asleep and breathing heavily. She was holding her hand to her throat, as though to protect it from cold. I did not wake her, but tucked her up warmly. I have taken care that the door is locked and the window securely fastened. She looks so sweet as she sleeps, but she is paler than is her wont, and there is a drawn, haggard look under her eyes which I do not like. I fear she is fretting about something. I wish I could find out what it is. 15 August. Rose later than usual. Lucy was languid and tired and slept on after we had been called. We had a happy surprise at breakfast. Arthur's father is better and wants the marriage to come off soon. Lucy is full of quiet joy and her mother is glad and sorry at once. Later on in the day she told me the cause. She is grieved to lose Lucy as her very own, but she is rejoiced that she is soon to have someone to protect her. Poor dear sweet lady, she confided to me that she has got her death warrant. She has not told Lucy and made me promise secrecy. Her doctor told her that within a few months at most she must die, for her heart is weakening. At any time, even now, a sudden shock would be almost sure to kill her. Ah, we were wise to keep from her the affair of the dreadful night of Lucy's sleepwalking. 17 August. No diary for two whole days. I have not had the heart to write. Some sort of shadowy pall seems to be coming over our happiness. No news from Jonathan, and Lucy seems to be growing weaker, whilst her mother's hours are numbering to a close. I do not understand Lucy's fading away as she is doing. She eats well and sleeps well and enjoys the fresh air, but all the same the roses in her cheeks are fading, and she gets weaker and more languid day by day. At night I hear her gasping as if for air. I keep the key of our door always fastened to my wrist at night, but she gets up and walks about the room and sits at the open window. Last night I found her leaning out when I woke up, and when I tried to wake her I could not. She was in a faint. When I managed to restore her, she was as weak as water, and cried silently between long, painful struggles for breath. When I asked her how she came to be at the window, 
She shook her head and turned away. I trust her feeling ill may not be from that unlucky... I trust her feeling ill may not be from that unlucky prick of the safety pin. I looked at her throat just now as she lay asleep, and the tiny wounds seem not to have healed. They are still open, and if anything, larger than before, and the edges of them are faintly white. They are like little white dots with red centers. Unless they heal within a day or two, I shall insist on the doctor seeing about them. Letter Samuel F. Billington and Son, Solicitors, Whitby, to Messrs. Carter, Patterson, and Company, London. 17 August. Dear Sirs, herewith please receive invoice of goods sent by Great Northern Railway. Same are to be delivered at Carfax near Purfleet, immediately on receipt at Goods Station, King's Cross. The house is at present empty, but enclosed, please find keys, all of which are labeled. You will please deposit the boxes, fifty in number, which form the consignment, in the partially ruined building forming part of the house and marked A on rough diagram enclosed. Your agent will easily recognize the locality as it is the ancient chapel of the mansion. The goods leave by the train at 9.30 tonight and will be due at King's Cross at 4.30 tomorrow afternoon. As our client wishes the delivery made as soon as possible, we shall be obliged by your having teams ready at King's Cross at the time named and forthwith conveying the goods to destination. In order to obviate any delays possible through any routine experiments as to requirements as to payment in your departments, we enclose check herewith for £10, receipt of which please acknowledge. Should the charge be less than this amount, you can return balance. If greater, we shall at once send check for difference on hearing from you. We are to leave the keys on coming away in the main hall of the house, where the proprietor may get them on his entering the house by means of his duplicate key. Pray do not take us as exceeding the bounds of business courtesy and pressing you in all ways to use the utmost expedition. We are, dear sirs, faithfully yours, Samuel F. Billington and Son. Letter, Messrs. Carter, Patterson and Company, London, to Messrs. Billington and Son, Whitby, 21 August. Dear sirs, we beg to acknowledge £10 receive and to return check £1.17.9... Something. Pennies? I don't know. We'll see. Amount of overplus, as shown in receipted account herewith. Goods are delivered in exact accordance with instructions, and keys left in parcel in main hall as directed. We are, dear sirs, yours respectfully, Pro, Carter, Patterson, and Company. And that seems like a good place to stop. Uh, oh, and I really want to know what 9D means in old-timey British money notations. Also, if I'm remembering my math correctly, 200 pounds turned into $30,000 in Lair of the White Worm, you know, from the Patreon. And uh, so that's going to be 150 times. Yeah, so 150 times. 1,500 bucks to deliver 50 boxes of dirt. Well, I don't know. I mean, it's bad dirt. It's evil dirt. I'll give them that. But still, that's a lot of money. Anyway, talk to you later. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons attribution license at ccmixter.org.